You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So before I bring our guest on, I wanted to give you a little bit of a backstory, which kind of dovetails into why our guest is coming on today. I think most listeners know that Labor Relations Radio is part of laborunionnews.com. And we started laborunionnews.com literally over the holidays the site was built. Um, We did it with a mission, and that is to become the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. Now, in addition to the over 1,900 articles that we have on there as of today that are hand-curated, categorized by topic, uh, we also have a couple other pages on there, one of which is the archives, but we also have a page called Resources. And a lot of people don't know that because I don't have it on a menu across the top purposely because it's over on one of the side columns. Now, the resources are there for a reason. And that is for people, whether whether you're an employee, an employer, or a union, to find additional resources. We've got all of the national union links from the AFL-CIO, the government resources being the Department of Labor, the various agencies within uh, the Department of Labor from BLS to OLMS, uh, OFCCP. We also have the National Labor Relations Board on there. We've got a bunch of podcasts, other people's podcasts. And then in the middle column, and not knowing what else to call the middle column, we just labeled it miscellaneous. There's a whole bunch of other miscellaneous links from websites to news publications, uh, AFL-CIO's blog, for example. And as we're building this out, I came across a group called the Americans for Fair Treatment. And the Americans for Fair Treatment is a group uh, that I'd never heard of, but they deal with public sector employees, primarily in the Northeast, but they're a national organization. And I, as I started looking around their website, I was like, hmm, this is kind of interesting. They're a national non-for-profit. Um, they offer educational materials and a free membership program to current and former public sector employees, primarily in New York and Pennsylvania. They uh, provide members with retail discounts, professional development scholarships, networking opportunities, all in support of exercising First Amendment rights. And so not knowing a lot about them, I, I have posted a couple articles that they had up, and I think that's where I found them. The uh, I wanted to reach out to them and did so a couple days, well, actually a couple weeks ago now, and said, do you have somebody come on to explain what AFFT does? And so... David Osborne, who's the CEO of AFFT, or Americans for Fair Treatment, was kind enough to come on and join me yesterday, and we had a fairly wide-ranging conversation about public sector union membership. Now, I I don't delve a lot into public sector, um, but there are people that do, and I found the conversation fascinating, and David kind of hit on some, some topics that I think is worthy for public sector employees to listen to. In any case, here's David Osborne. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So David Osborne, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. So 
tell me about yourself and tell me about the Americans for Fair Treatment. I, I just discovered you folks a couple weeks ago as I was building out Labor Union News and wanted to explore what it is that you folks do. Well, how'd you find out about us, Peter? I literally, I think I saw an article that uh, linked back to you and I was posting articles one late one night. So I was like, huh, let me check them out. So been searching around your website a little bit, posted a couple articles that you'd uh, put up recently. So great. I've been doing the same with, with your work, Peter. Uh, uh, my name is David Osborne. I'm CEO of Americans for Fair Treatment. Uh, Americans for Fair Treatment is a nonprofit that educates and empowers public sector employees, uh, particularly public sector employees who are trying to work in a unionized atmosphere. Um, I happen to be a lawyer by trade, and uh, I got into this uh, world um, as a lawyer. Um, I started to litigate public um, interest cases on behalf of public employees, because really you know, unions have a lot of lawyers, public employers have a lot of lawyers, there are plenty of employees who are sort of caught in the middle, and they may need to uh, they may need to hire a lawyer. But many of the issues that they have to go after their union for, for instance, you know, dues or fees payments, um, or even go after their employer for um, without the help of the union, are fairly small dollar items. And um, it's hard to hire a lawyer to go after your union for a few thousand dollars in in, uh, in union dues or something like that. So uh, I became a public interest lawyer. That means we, we could represent them for free and sue, uh, in particular, the unions um, on a First Amendment basis, especially when it comes to um, union dues and fees. But we even did some um, union corruption cases and... Um, and a number of uh, um, duty of fair representation cases. And I, um, I was going to ask you, did you fair representation cases where the union is failing to represent them? Sure did. And that's that's a unique area of the law. And, and for the exact same reason that I just laid out, it, it's one in which employees have been virtually unable to defend themselves. Unions will bring in their fleet of lawyers. I was doing this in, in Pennsylvania. So they would bring in their fleet of lawyers from Philadelphia to defend the union and to explain why its conduct was reasonable and all that stuff. And the employee typically is going to be on their own. Um, if they're going to hire a lawyer, um, the fees are going to be pretty capped and um, it'll be very difficult for them. Well, we were able as a function of our, our status as a public interest law firm to bring all of the resources to bear that a union or employer for that matter could. And, um, and really uh, when you look at some of the case law in that area, Public employees have rarely been able to win on a, on a duty of fair representation case. Um, so we were really making law in this area. And I did that work for about six or seven years. And then um, I uh, helped to, to uh, revamp this organization called Americans for Fair Treatment. Um, Americans for Fair Treatment, around the time of the Janus decision, um, Janus versus AFSCME said that at least public sector employees uh, don't need to pay a fee in order to keep their job. In a union, and so uh, uh, in order to keep their, their their public sector job, so um, this organization was ramped up around that and was reaching public employees to share with them their rights and then to help them leave the union if that's what they wanted to do, and then if they um, ended up running into trouble with their union, to, to back them with support, both in terms of community but also with connections to lawyers uh, that are doing the kind of work that that I was doing at that time. Um, 
But a year and a half ago, I moved over and became Americans for Fair Treatment's first CEO. And my job here is really to um, to take this organization to the next level and reach public employees with this message. Um, one of the things that we've been able to do is uh, is find public employees increasingly who are in trouble um, with their unions and to to support them um, in expressing their First Amendment rights and declaring their union independence. And then we've also provided more in the way of community support to them. So we have our own membership program, for instance. Uh, it's a free membership program that public employees can join, um, in particular when they leave the union, and get all sorts of things, in some cases, um, you know, benefits, the kinds that unions might provide to public employees. So uh, but, I have a bit of a wonky question for you. Sure, um, yeah. Janice versus AFSCME affected only public sector employees. Um, and I think most of our listeners are probably HR, labor relations folks under the NLRA, which is for private sector. Uh-huh. So under Janice versus AFSCME, do you have to go into, um, you know, we've got 50 states with presumably 50 state public sector laws, mm-hmm. right, for unionizing public sector workers. And some states don't have it at all. You know, they don't have collective bargaining rights or that you can unionize. So do you have to know the law in each of the 50 states? What, in order to litigate a Janus case? Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, um, there may be, uh, one of the nice things about litigating a First Amendment case, uh, and that's the kind of case that one would file in order to enforce Janus rights, is that one does not need to go through you know, arbitration, one does not need to uh, file an unfair labor practice charge, the rights under uh, under federal law allow you to go straight to court to vindicate those First Amendment rights. Okay, so you're so if I'm in Pennsylvania or say Iowa, and I'm a union member, public sector, and my union's you know forcing me to pay dues against my will, and Janice B. asks me, you go straight to federal court as opposed to whatever the the state labor board is, so to speak. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Okay. Now you could go to state court as well. State courts have what they call concurrent jurisdiction of the same federal statutes. But um, and if you're in a but if you're in a state where that's that's a problem, um, generally speaking, the federal courts are going to be the ones to the, that you want to run to to help you protect public employees under the First Amendment. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. I just I wanted to clarify that before I forgot it. No, that's that's fine. Um, so uh, uh, one of the interesting things that we've been able to do with our, with our membership program at Americans for Fair Treatment is to make sure that people, um, a lot of public employees, once they leave uh, public employment, um, that doesn't mean that they want to uh, sort of get out of the game. Um, um, well, uh, sorry, let me back up. When a public employee leaves their union, um, they generally do it for a reason. It's a principled reason. So we work with a lot of people who've, for instance, not appreciated the fact that public employee unions generally spend 90 plus percent of their political dollars on Democrat candidates. Um, some of these folks are Democrats. They just don't like the idea of your unions being um, politically involved. Um, so they're principled people. And that means that they really ha- they have something to say. They don't just want out of the unions. A lot of them really want to do something to counteract the union's um, influence. So what we've provided them at Americans for Fair Treatment is a bit of a community and a lot of chances to, to, uh, to amplify their voice in the court of public opinion. They've done things like um, um, written op-eds. We do member spotlights uh, that 
allow them to tell their story, especially with regard to the union, um, and even giving them opportunities to testify um, in uh, court cases and in um, legislative hearings about reforms that could be very helpful to them, especially in the uh, in the labor space. So we've done that, and then um, and then Peter, I think you'll be excited about this. The uh, some of the work that we've done is as we've started counting people leaving their unions is that we'll look at a particular bargaining unit and realize, well, gee, 50 plus percent of the folks in this bargaining unit are no longer members. And uh, what a lot of employees don't realize is that opens up a big opportunity for them to explore either a decertification or creating their own local union. So um, we've I been saw able to that on that. your website, and I wanted to ask you about that because um, that's a fascinating concept. I, I think you had, and I'm switching over the your site for a second. I think you had a um, an example of. Uh, I can't find it. Where are you? Uh, yeah, under. And for the listeners, I'm going to put all these links under the audio portion of this episode. But uh, Ross Common Teachers Association. Cut ties with NEA in 2012. They're able to reduce union dues. So they're still a union. They're just no longer affiliated with the NEA, it looks like. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, these public employees, they don't have to scrap the whole union concept. Most of our most of our uh, polling shows that public employees are, are happy with the idea of unionization. They're just not happy with their union. So it's almost like the opposite of the congressman problem that uh, people will report uh, widespread uh, dissatisfaction with Congress, but they really like their congressman. The exact opposite with unions. Um, and they would love to be represented, but AFSCME's not doing the job. You know, SCIU's not doing the job. So for a fraction of the cost, uh, we've helped um, we've helped public employees set up their own their own local union. We might call it a local only union or an independent local union and uh, give them, we've got model bylaws that they can start from um, in order to, to, to build out the governance of that institution. And then ultimately they have to win an election and that's really their job to do. But uh, we can give them the tools um, that are necessary to get there. Yeah, see that, that's a, a fascinating concept. And in the private sector, um, you know, employees have their Section 7 rights. And a lot, of, a lot of times because a major union has caught their ear, they don't realize that they can do everything under the National Labor Relations Act without a major union that they can with, you know, with the union, so to speak. So they have the right to collectively bargain and all that. Mm-hmm. Takes a little bit more work and you've got to file paperwork, but... Um, that's interesting. You're doing that in the public sector. Have have you seen an uptick in? Well, this is kind of a loaded question. Have you seen an uptick in the specific types of clients that you've had, or or public sector union members that you've had, like a, a whether it's a AFSCME type or NEA, AFT? Sure, they kind of come in waves. Right after Janice, I think there was a big backup of folks who simply didn't want to pay the union for services that they didn't value. So um, before Janice, when I was when I was an attorney working in this area, we mostly worked with with people who were conservatives who were opposed to their unions, um, uh, especially political work. Mm-hmm. After Janice, there seemed to become a lot more folks who who simply never liked the union. But it wasn't for a political reason. It was for something far more personal. It had to do with their day-to-day work. And so they wanted to stop paying the union to send a message to their to their union officials. 
And so um, those were those those people looked different. They thought different from the folks that came beforehand. Um, now that that uh, uh, many of those folks have found their way out of the union after sometimes after much litigation, um, the types of folks who are coming to us. Um, are people who've been dissatisfied with their particular union and are looking to make a change. Um, now, so I'm talking a little bit about moving from one union to another. One of the one of the uh, one of the waves that we've seen is police officers um, or anybody else in law enforcement that have been organized historically under AFSCME or SCIU. Yet when there's a, an officer-involved shooting, the reflex of these unions is to go out and blame the officers. So these police officers or law enforcement see their union officials doing that. Sometimes a guy like Lee Saunders or something like that. Right. Um, will, they'll, they'll see that that happened, and they'll think, how can I trust a union that, that automatically thinks I'm the bad guy? So a lot of those folks are, are looking to represent you in a in a representation yeah. hearing. That yeah. So a lot of those folks are, are looking to leave AFSCME or SCIU, and they're doing it a lot of in some instances without us. But um, I'll give you one example. We worked with a group of uh, Albany police officers. I happen to be sitting in New York right now in Albany, but Albany police officers um, who used our tools in order to leave their union shortly after Janice. But over the years that followed. Um, the, the template letter that we have on our website that helps people resign from their union just got passed around and passed around and passed around to the extent that over 50% of the folks left their union. And it suddenly became a reality that they could um, decertify or kick out their union. They chose instead of, and this was an AFSCME affiliate, what they decided to do was um, start their own local union. And um, other folks have chosen to go with FOP or something more sort of tr traditionally law enforcement um, related. But uh, but those are the kind of kind of uh, I call it union independence, not independence from unions, but union independence, the right, right. to self determine when it comes to when it comes to your own relationship with the union. Well, in in some states, um, if you're a public servant and law enforcement fire, et cetera, and you're having to negotiate salaries, you know, with a city board or whatever, you know, at some point, sometimes it's necessary. So it's just whether you want to be affiliated with a major union like that, that may not be serving your interests. Yeah, that's right. Or, well, or the, if there's a conflict of interest. Yep. And, and the fundamental problem here is one that, you know, uh, Peter, you're well aware of. Um, listeners are probably, uh, if, if they are as you describe them, they're probably painfully aware of it, that the, the union law as it's, as it's been created and recreated over time is fundamentally collectivist. Mm -hmm. So that if you're an individual who's unsatisfied with your union, it really won't mean a lot when it comes to which union represents you. You're stuck, at least unless uh, you can build a collective effort going the other direction. Right. And that, that's precisely why um, why the, the First Amendment, some of these constitutional protections that were really built for some of the minority interests are so important in the context of unionization. Without that, um, we're entirely dependent on collective, you know, groups of public employees filing labor board charges and uh, uh, petitioning to have unions thrown out. Um, and it's it's really these lawsuits that give them so much power, at least to begin with. Yeah, and we see some of it in the private sector, not necessarily going to 
independent unions, so to speak. But if if there's a group of employees that are part of the machinists, for example, and machinists are not getting them good contracts or failing to represent them, sometimes they'll switch out at the end of the contract to a different union. It doesn't happen all that often, but um, yeah, they'll they'll do a, a switch over to a different union. They well, don't necessarily happen. go. It doesn't happen because they can't they can't organize on, on work time. Right. Yet the un, the union that they're counts basically counter organizing against has full time staff that organize all day around the clock, and they can do it with the full knowledge and complement of of the lawyers that are involved in the process. Um, a lot of these these employees, whether private or public, are really kind of left to do the work themselves after hours or on the weekends. It's it, it, without it's getting caught. That's right. Well, that's right. That's without, right. Without being put on trial by the union for not abiding by the constitution. That's true. Yep. Yep. The, um, so part of my question, why I was kind of loaded about the types of, of clients you've had. Um, I was wondering if you've seen an uptick with teachers, particularly over the last couple of years. And oh, there's, yeah. this, well, there's this big, you know, controversy with what's being taught and stuff like that. Great question. Um, it's it, the things that are being taught. Uh, uh, let me let me set that aside for a second. I, I do want to come back to that. The more important thing for a lot of teachers, particularly up in the Northeast, have been the vaccine mandates. Mm-hmm. So we've had a lot of teachers who otherwise would have loved their union. They love the politics that their union engages in, but they've suddenly realized that having two. Uh, having their union on the same side of the bargaining table as their employer, because that's kind of how public relations ends up working, um, results in a union that's very dictatorial and that does that really fails to represent them when it comes to something as important as a vaccine mandate. The unions have um, uh, depends on the union, but many of these un- the teachers' unions have actually advocated for vaccine mandates and then have required um, using the power of public employment, their, their, their own members to go out and get vaccinated. Teachers have been very upset about that. Um, we were involved with a bunch of teachers, especially in New York City, um, who were willing to lose their jobs in order not to get the vaccine. And they were blaming their union in part for that. So uh, one of the things that one can do short of having a collective effort is send a message to your union by resigning, and that's what they did. So they resigned in mass. Um, at one at one point, we had 200 teachers leave their union all at the same time. Um, there were there were far more than that that did it over the course of of the pandemic. So that was one one issue that really it was a wedge issue between most teachers and and the public sector unions that are supposed to represent them. So you're, you said you're in New York right now. Um, I lost track of where that stands. I know that there is some deadline where every New York City worker had to be vaccinated by X and X date, just like a month or two ago. And I don't know if that got dropped because you've got there's a new mayor in New York, and I don't know if that. So there's like four thousand public sector workers that got fired. I saw a couple, well about a month ago. I don't know if they they are still in the process of getting fired or if they backed off on that? Yeah, you know, I can't recall, but I'll tell you what what has been a real trend among the public sector is that if you put in a request for a religious exemption, um, you don't get denied and you don't get it proved. Uh, it just kind of sits there and they, they set it aside. So a lot of public employees have chosen 
to file either a religious or medical exemption and to see where that takes them. And um, I'm not up to date on on the status of those. There are a lot of cases filed over that issue as well. Yeah. Um, um, you asked about uh, about education. I mean, the parents. Um, there's been a real movement among parents in particular, and I know it was expressed politically in Virginia right. against public education. The public education was pushing um, certain political ideas, at least in the view of these parents, that, that, that they were not happy with. And a lot of them blamed the teachers. Um, I, uh, I have to say, I have known a lot of teachers. I know that teachers lean a little bit to the left, but Research shows that the the unions and union officials are far to the left of teachers, and that teachers' unions, if any teachers were pushing um, some of this curricula, some of these curriculum changes, they were doing it with the the full strength and backing of the union. And you may have seen um, Randy Weingarten tweet about this stuff over and over again. She's the leader of the one of the most aggressive teachers' unions. Um, they're very close with the with the president, with a lot of sitting governors, and um, I, I, for parents who are upset with teachers about this, I, I, I think that the enemy here is not the teachers, nearly as much as the unions. I know there are some teachers out there that are pushing this stuff too, but it's the unions that are really the powerful instrument. Yeah, I was I was kind of I was more curious of there is there teachers who have seen the curriculum changing there and thereafter dropping or wanting to drop. Um, and the second part of that is even back to the vaccine mandates, um, there's been a number of teachers unions, Chicago's one that comes up, that is pushing the uh, mask mandates and not wanting to go back to school until, you know, it's forced masks, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah, well, uh, so on that first one, m- most teachers uh still don't believe that their union has power over over uh, curriculum. Um, and that's because the, the um, there is always a little bit of wiggle room within the curriculum for these teachers. If you're a smart teacher who disagrees with your union on such a fine point as like critical race theory or something like that, you can find your way around some of the some of the curriculum that unions are pushing with local school boards. Um, for instance, some of the curriculum mandates will say things like, you know, uh, teachers have to teach about the lasting legacy of uh, of racism in our country. That that those kinds of phrases mean different things to different people. It's enabled teachers who want to teach about critical race theory to do so. But it, it's just as much left room for a teacher who doesn't want to teach about that stuff to uh, to get around it. Hmm. What teachers unions have done to make this really complicated for their teachers, and this is where people have left is by being the public face of critical race theory or other really controversial topics like that. They've insisted, we, we had people attend um, their annual conferences, both uh, the, the NEA and AFT's annual conferences last year, and it was all about critical race theory and, 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 and emotional learning. Um, they seem to want this issue. And Unfortunately, it turns a lot of parents and it turns a lot of um, a lot of political actors against teachers, and it politicizes their profession. So, that, I mean, that has been a point of contention with with the teachers that we work with for a very long time. The critical race theory stuff has only accelerated that. Um, so, I 
I guess my question, uh, and it's not necessarily about critical race theory or, or it's kind of the whole smattering of political issues that seem to be emanating out of the classrooms. There's a big controversy going on in Florida this week, and I'm not even sure what it's about. I just see the headlines and, you know, everybody's all ticked off at each other. And of course, Twitter's blowing up at each other. Um, so I was, I was wondering if events like that kind of drive the members to you when they come up. Yeah. If I'm on, if I'm on one side of the issue and, and this issue comes up in the state and the governor signs a law or, you know, parents are protesting, does it drive more of your clients towards you, so to speak? Yeah. I've got an interesting answer to that. Um, to, to the extent that the parents are sort of on the attack against teachers, I would say some teachers actually run to their union for support. Teachers not who may have not not otherwise wanted their union to be involved in their life suddenly feel like they're on the chopping block. Mm-hmm. Um, they they overvalue something like employee um, liability insurance that the unions provide. Um, they think that there may need to be a grievance filed on their behalf to keep their job, and the way to to get that stuff done is to buy to be a, a best is to be a union member with a personal relationship with your union official and. So, um, but unfortunately, I think they're running to the wrong person. That's a that is a false hope. Um, and the 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 truth is, the unions have created that culture of fear um, to drive people to the union. The the real truth is, these folks don't need a union to support themselves, and it's the unions that have driven the parents crazy. Yeah. You know, this is kind of off topic, but I've got uh, one of my best friends who we worked after, you know, we went to school together, um, worked construction after high school together, worked for the old Ma, old Ma Bell telephone company. Uh, and, you know, his, his career went one way, mine went a different way. And so he is now a high school teacher. Um, and we're, you know, we're getting up there in age, but he told me when he first got his master's degree, it might've been his BA, but started going into the classroom that he joined the union. Mm-hmm. Now this is in Arizona where it's not a, a big union presence, but he said the reason he did it is there are so many lawsuits where he could be accused of something mm-hmm. and, you know, either a go to jail or B um, lose his teaching license, even if it's a false accusation and the, I think it's the NEA out there, but, um, you know, they have an insurance program and obviously they have representation, but the insurance that they provide to the teachers is something that he could not get somewhere else. And he told me this probably 10, 12 years ago, mm-hmm. and not a pro union guy. Um, although we we're both union reps at one point, but you know, he, he had left the union movement, wasn't a fan of it, is not politically aligned with the union. Um, but he, you know, went into the union strictly for the insurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of people do that. A lot of yeah. people do that, um, particularly teachers. Uh, and I, I realize teachers do face some interesting threats that you and I may not understand. Um, you know, a teacher uh, can be accused of all sorts of things. I kid. Um, uh, one of those is some sort of physical, you know, they have to restrain a child, for instance. Um, they're incurring enormous liability that, that you and I wouldn't have to deal with every day. But uh, the insurance product that the unions provide is, first of all, I've never known anybody that's actually to access those products. Okay, they're, they're, It's like an, insu- uh, an umbrella insurance product mm-hmm. that really only comes into effect after 
the uh, the school's liability insurance has been exhausted. As a result, the the price of these products is actually pretty low. The union is paying right. very small amounts for this insurance product. And one can actually get that product without the union. You could do it using a union alternative. There are uh, several teacher organizations like American Association of Educators, uh, Christian Teachers, um, uh, Christian, edu uh, Christian Educators Association. Um, there are state-based equivalents like KEDA in, in Pennsylvania that provide mm -hmm. these sorts of products. Um, one doesn't actually even need to join one of those. You can go straight to the to the insurance um, broker and and get it that way. And I'm, I'm telling you, it's extremely cheap. The the reality is they're just not used that often. If one I, thinks well, I don't think they're known that much. You know, it's you get hired at a unionized school. This happens private sector too, not just with schools. But you know, they're already unionized. You get your little, you know, here's the copy of the contracts, here's the union card, you know, would you sign up? And they don't know that there's an alternative, especially young teachers. But yep. the, I'm familiar with the AEA. I think I did a, a post years ago about them back in 2012 or 2014, somewhere in there. Well, one of the things we've done, though, as an organization is we figured, um, you know, teachers can assess their own interest in this product. But one of the things we can do is make it easier to rely on another organization to get that insurance uh, rather than the, the, the union. And mm -hmm. so we provided scholarships to a lot of our members who want to try out a union alternative. They can do that uh, for free if, they, if they're awarded a scholarship by our organization. Um, sometimes it's for a year, sometimes for two years. And, um, and, and generally they've, uh, they've, they've been very happy with that. Well, to your concept of um, independent unions, so to speak, I don't know if unions right word or association, but um, I'm wondering if you know from if I'm paying the AFT say thousand dollars a year, two thousand dollars a year, is it would it be a cheaper alternative for a group of of teachers to do an independent union hook up with somebody like the AEA to get yep. their insurance and yeah. you know save money that way? It is, and the, um, the savings are really on the on the. Um, overhead and political stuff. So if you, uh, right. very few dollars, if you're a union member paying dues, very few dollars stay with your local union. Out of that $1,000, theoretically, and uh, probably less than 100 is going to your local union. The rest of it's going up to pay Randy Weingarten's, you know, $500,000 salary right. to pay for a lot of the political stuff. Um, some of the folks that we work with see, you know, their AFL-CIO affiliate or their um, their Uniserve rep driving around in a company vehicle, mm -hmm. you know, and they're paying for that. So if one can keep it local and, and start their own independent organization, then um, they don't have to pay all that stuff. And it is relatively cheap to get these insurance products or even to do a deal with, uh, get a retainer with a lawyer to do the grievance um, and arbitration proceedings when they're necessary. The, 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 the big national unions are just so bloated um, that, that they end up paying far more in dues than they'd have to. Have you, have you folks ever thought about um, putting up the LMs for the national units, like the financial reports? You know what? We put out a great product. We take a look at all the LM2s for public sector unions. Um, most public sector unions are filing LM2s. Mm -hmm. um, some of them don't have to. And we take those and we turn them into a really digestible document called Where Do Your Dues Go? And we post those on our website. Um, we hand them out to a lot of public employees. 
they tell a story that one has to be pretty educated when reading an LM2 to be able to, to, to come up with. Um, for instance, the, the NE, uh, with the NEA, um, roughly two out of every $3 go towards political causes. Someone who pays dues, you know, if they're paying $1,000 in dues, 666 of that is going to, to political causes, whether, yeah. Yeah, so now you see, I just didn't go down deep enough into your site because I'm there now. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, you, it's, yeah you've got the graphics, the 30% for representational activities, 22%. This is AFT's um, unit administration, 5%. It's very, it's very disturbing, but I'll tell you, unions have gotten very good at um, at hiding things within those LM2s. Um, the back sheet of most of our what do you, where do your dues go publications talks about some of the organizations that receive union funds. Uh, they like to split it up across a lot of organizations that all engage in political behavior. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that money ends up going back into one central organization or one central effort. But with the LM2, one doesn't have to trace it that far down. Um, so we do that kind of work. That has been very convincing um, to public employees. It's been an educational piece that allows them to see really what what are you funding and um, and are you getting your money's worth. Well, I you know I've been dealing with employees and union issues for a really really long time, and it wasn't until probably my third year as a union member. Um, and already a shop steward that I even knew what an LM was. And, mm -hmm. you know, then we started looking around and digging into it. And that was because we had a political issue going on within the union local. You know, here's how they spent the money last year and all that sort of stuff. So um, most workers throughout the United States, private and public sector, probably have no idea where their dues actually go. I've had workers tell me that they thought their dues went to pay for their benefits. And they, right. that's not what it is. Right. Yeah. Huge, huge misconception among the public sector employees that we work with. Um, but I'll tell you, I mean, one of the more important things about union political behavior that drives people away is the fact that some of this stuff is unrecorded. Um, it's power and influence. Uh, Peter, you had posted something on your website recently about an off the record meeting with, with Joe Biden. Oh, yeah. This past weekend. And, and um, uh, this is the kind of thing that may not show up on an LM2 at all. Um, as, as you noted, newspapers aren't reporting on it either. But when they get into that back room, you can imagine what the conversations are like. They're, they're doing political deals with, with, uh, with government officials. And it's not just Biden. They, they have close relationships with, uh, with state, with, with governors, with county officials, with city officials. Um, they're getting dinner all the time and, and having the union members pay for it. Mm -hmm. um, and who knows what comes out on the other end. If it's, uh, if it's something political, which Janice tells us nearly everything is political when it comes to political, when it comes to public sector, um, public sector employees, then, you know, they've unwittingly funded all that paper. Well, uh, you know, I, the meeting over the weekend, which, um, and, and I was really shocked that it didn't make any media other than a couple local people. Um, it's, it's akin to, I don't care if you use Trump or Bush or Reagan or whomever, you know, having a meeting with the fortune 50 and nobody reporting on what's being talked about. 
Yep. And, you know, we're at a time right now where across the political, well, I shouldn't say political spectrum, the, the workplace spectrum, if you will, um, where you've got, you know, the National Labor Relations Board is changing the law. You've got the public sector doing, you know, PLAs in the construction industry, a whole bunch of stuff. And you're meeting with all the people that are basically lobbying, because uh-huh. that's what it becomes, lobbying to make this stuff happen. And nobody seems to care. Yeah, I mean, it, equally disturbing. Some of these folks, Peter, uh, with either either directly under or or uh, within their hierarchy of 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 union affiliation, some of these folks are actually supposed to be sitting across the bargaining table from Joe Biden. Yeah, and hammering out true. deals for federal <laughs> employees. So um, that's the conflict of interest you've got with the um, not just at the federal level, state level, city level, all the way down. These the unions in the public sector, and this is the vicious circle that a lot of people don't realize. The unions will t- pour a ton of money into getting a, a an official elected, and then wind up sitting across the table from the person who they got elected, and yeah. of course the the city manager or the you know local official or whomever president you know they're they're basically looking at their benefactors saying oh <laughs> well i'm not going to do anything to hurt you i'll help you you right and and some public employees perceive that as as having a strong union um, what what i think that the the reality is is that the union gets a onto the same side of the bargaining table with the employers that they got elected. And then they do deals that ultimately benefit the two of them and and are a disservice to the employees that they're supposed to be representing. So one example that, that, that all of your listeners would be very familiar with are dues deductions. Mm-hmm. A union sits down supposedly across the bargaining table from a, from a, from a public sector official. And they say, um, you know, by the way, we want to have union deductions um, so that we don't have to go out and collect those dues for ourselves. It would be very expensive, and very costly. You could do it uh, at the push of a button, presumably. And the, you know what, you know what the public sector guy says, the, the, the management um, person says, well, what will you give me? And there is some sort of trade-off that happens there. Whether it's expressed in terms of uh, you know a, a, a benefit or a side deal, what ultimately happens is that the financial benefit, the the, the salary, the wages um, are impacted whenever the union gets something from. They have to give up something to get that thing. So employees will see um, their own interests sacrificed for the union's interest in getting dues deductions. Now, that's a small example, but it happens right. all the time with various other things. Uh, official time or um, or okay. release time on the local let me, level. Let me stop you with official time because this is one that a lot of people don't realize, and it's been, it's been a controversy for the last few years at the federal level. But you want to explain what official time is? Well, yeah, it's a, um, official time on the federal level is the provision of uh, union labor paid for by the by the public. Um, there are employees, either employees who will go on full-time official time and cease their working for a, um, for the government and go work for the union full-time while still getting paid and treated like a public employee, or it will be a number of employees who go on partial um, release to go work for the union, but they, the government is funding all of it. I.e., the taxpayers funding it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, 
this happens on the state level as well. Uh, in some cases, there are requirements for reimbursement, but of course, unions would prefer that the employer pay for all this stuff. Um, and uh, in order to get that benefit, you know, to keep the union running using public dollars, um, it ends up being a, a, a slight against the employees. They they end up getting a cut in some sort of pay or term and condition of employment. Yeah. So the the official time thing, which um, it came up under the Trump administration where he cut it back, and then I believe Joe Biden just reversed that. So it's basically doing union business while on the company clock or yeah. in public sector on the on the taxpayers clock. Yeah, and what I what I found out in my uh, so I was appointed by by uh, Donald Trump to a, a panel called the Federal Service Impasse Panel, and this is an important panel that honestly I had not heard about before I got there. It was a panel that um, that whenever there's an impasse in the negotiations between the federal agency and the and the union, they would help them hammer out a deal to to uh, end the impasse. And this is such a powerful group, uh, such a powerful panel that. Um, if they can't come to a resolution, the panel is empowered to impose terms and conditions on the parties. And there are some statutory um, requirements as far as balancing the competing interests that uh, I'm proud I'm proud to have observed. Um, but one of the things that was very difficult was to understand how the agencies and the unions were accounting for their official time. Um, a lot of times, union officials would go in and um, and either fill out a form or mark on their their internal software that they were going to be doing official time and it would rarely get approved officially approved by any anybody with meaningful authority within the agency hmm. and um, and worse than that there were tons of times where it wasn't even tracked at all so that when you're sitting down the party with the parties and trying to understand the official time impasse um, what you're realizing is nobody's nobody's actually been no, nobody's cared about this for years. Nobody's been accounting for it, and um, we don't even really realize the scope of the problem right now. Right. But ultimately, I'm trying to make the case this is a this is a bad deal for employees. This is not. It may be a way for for the unions to run their organization, and it may be a way for them to uh, to to uh, get more money out of taxpayers. But ultimately, employees pay the price for it. Yeah, it's um, it, it's one of those issues that not enough people know about. You know, it, you're basically running your business if you're a union on somebody else's dime. In the private sector, they can get away with it because the employer ultimately has agreed to it. But public sector, and that goes to the whole issue of public sector unions and their growth and and stuff like that. It's um, one of those things that, as a society, I think we need to take a closer look at. And I don't know the you know, it's really not in vogue right now to to do that. Uh, Chris well, Christie did for a the, few years. Perhaps to the average uh, to the average um, taxpayer, here here's what they would see on the state level. We have an office. Americans for Treatment has an office in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, capital of Pennsylvania. I happen to be sitting in Albany right now. I saw the same thing yesterday up here. Um, the unions uh, will get a charter bus. And will bus out a ton of employees who would otherwise be working a nine to five for the government, for county, state government. Um, they show up there with with union provided T-shirts and union sandwiches. And when they get out of the bus, you can ask them, "Hey, what what are you here to do? What, are you here to protest something?" And they say, "Yeah, yeah, we're here to protest the CIU." Yeah, what are you what are you protesting? I don't I don't know. I just got a sandwich. <laughs> 
They got off work. They got a free trip to Harrisburg, and they got a sandwich. And unfortunately, because they're there under release time, you're paying for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it doesn't really matter what they've gone up there to support. You may agree with it. What's really problematic is that the, the unions have, are providing the foot soldiers that are paid for by the taxpayers. Right. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, there's, I want to go back probably 10 or so years. There's a uh, video, I think it hit NPR, Carpenters Union, totally, again, private sector, was protesting in downtown Washington, D.C., and I don't remember what they were protesting. It might have been a non-union construction company or something. But they hired a bunch of homeless people to protest. And they, they asked the uh, carpenter's business rep, you know, why are you using people who are not actually carpenter members? And he said, the parking in D.C. is really hard to get a parking spot for, and our guys are out working. So I was like, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> AstroTurf. But, um. Well, David, let me let me ask you uh, how. Obviously, I'm going to put the links to the website. Um, how do folks get hold of you? If I don't know if they're if they have an issue, do you do you take the issues in and evaluate whether you can help them, or you know just search the website? Yeah, we'd love to hear from them directly. Um, go to our website. It's AmericansForFairTreatment.org. Mm-hmm. Or if you're on a mobile phone or otherwise pressed for time, you can just write AFFT.org. Um, that's the best way to get in touch with us. You can you can learn a little bit about the organization there as well. And we've got some resources, including resources to help you get out of your union uh, if you're in New York, Pennsylvania, uh, where we predominantly focus. And uh, we can help you find other organizations that will help if your problem is a little bit different. So um, um, we specialize in connecting public employees with resources they may not know about. And and you're a 501c3? That's right. Yeah, nonprofit. Okay. okay. So they can donate as well? Absolutely. But listen, if there are public employees out there, I, I we'd rather be talking to you and learning from you about uh, about what you're seeing from your union. So um, that consider that the donation uh, to our organization. If you agree with what we're doing, uh, we want to hear your stories. Awesome. Well, David Osborne, AFFT, I, I appreciate the time that we've been on and learning about the organization some more and having the conversation. And I, I'm, if you have stuff come up, I always mention this to guests. Give me a shout out or, or email me. I'd be happy to have you on again. I'll do it, Peter. That'd be great. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, that was David Osborne with Americans for Fair Treatment, or AFFT. You can find them at americansforfairtreatment.org or afft.org. I'm going to include some links to a number of pages on their website that I found interesting and hope you check them out. Um, They're an interesting group with a different message or uh, mission than a lot of groups have. They're not necessarily anti-union. They do represent or help individual public sector employees. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, leave us a comment under the uh, audio portion of this episode, or you can hit us up at laborunionnews.com or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. That's 1-888-668-6466 or on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. 
Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio.